Welcome to Wonder Tour with Derek Cobb and Drew Perot. I'm Derek. And I'm Drew. We are on a journey to become better leaders by touring fantastic worlds and inspiring lore by going on a wonder tour. We connect leadership concepts to story context because it sticks in our brain better. You can find out more at wondertourpodcast.com. All right, Derek, get ready to get dunked under the waters of truth and wake up on the shores of your own subconscious because today we're talking about Inception. This episode of Wonder Tour brought to you by Cobol Engineering. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, welcome back today. to Wonder Tour. What'd you say? We're the bad guys today. No. Yeah, yeah. No, just joking. But um, you know, I thought it'd be fun to start off with Cobol Engineering, just because it's uh, I don't know, it's a kind of catchy name actually. I never get to see the logo, but um, we know that they are armed. <laughs> yeah, well, is it even about. real? Is it? Is it oh, the train self? Yeah, is it the the train subconscious? We don't know. But we're gonna get to that. And I think now is a perfect time, Derek, to talk about the fact that we usually go so deep on these Christopher Nolan movies that we're going to try a new format today and we might end up uh, keeping it going forward. But we're going to break this into two parts. We've heard some feedback that um, the episodes are really long and we hear you. We don't really want to make them shorter, though. So our alternative is to maybe, in fact, maybe make them just as long or longer, but break them into two parts where the part one can be the more high level, where we focus on usually the mentoring and whatever our moment is, and maybe one of the higher level uh, morals. And then part two will be for like the philosophy nerds who wanna go deep and, you know, <laughs> you I don't know if everybody's wants to go to that level or not, that's, that's where I thrive at, but part two will be the more deep dive into the different morals and the crazy analysis of like in this scenario, probably the ending of the movie we'll talk about in part two. So Derek, anything else to say about the sudden change in how we're handling the episodes? No, I think that's perfect. Um, Think of it as multiple dream levels. So (laughs) it will be below limbo in the second half. (laughs) That's a perfect way to think about it. Yeah. Part two (laughs) is when we go to limbo for the episode. (laughs) Yeah. What is in the water? Who knows? We'll find out. All right, Derek. Well, we're in another Christopher Nolan movie, which means I, I'm very excited to be here. What do you think about Inception? What's your favorite parts of this movie? I want you to lead it off here. Oh, my. This movie, um, you know, while I, I am fairly... Uh, similarly excited as you. I, I don't know that I could ever reach that peak of, you know. But anyway, um, when I saw this movie the first time, I was like, uh, yeah, I really like that because there's so much uh, truth in the uh, the dream piece of it. Um, you know, just how dreams work and how you can have these kind of levels to dreams. And um, of course, after I watched this movie, I 
would tell people like, yeah, I was in a, uh, you know, a two level dream, you know, whatever last night, you know, um, because you start to notice that you start to like, you realize like, oh man, that is kind of what happens, you know, um, it's really weird. But, uh, although I would say my dreams are more like adjacent style sometimes too, where you just, you're, you're, you're running on this one topic, this one, you know, whatever. And then all of a sudden the Kool-Aid guy busts through the wall and something else starts up. Right. Um, however, the times where I've been in the deepest sleep, I can definitely, um, I don't know. And, and that's what gets me about this movie because like it really resonates with something that, you know, you deal with every night. (laughs) Right. Um, and it helps you consider, what is going on inside your own head sometimes. So I think that's really fun. I like any movie that, that helps you do that really. Cause that, you know, I'm into that stuff, right? That is a great point. I wonder how many people can specifically pick out like dream was a dreams within a dream that they've had themselves. It's so weird. I don't think that I even like knew it was possible. You're right. Until I watched this movie, but afterwards I can definitely pick out a handful of dream within a dreams that I've woken up from some very vivid ones where I was like, like where when I was in that first level dream after I had come out of the second level dream, I was sure that it was reality. And then I woke up again and I was like, what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's right. I mean, you know, it's it gets really weird sometimes, of course, uh, when you have kids and you don't really get the, the sleep on a regularity. Um, yeah. Anyway, it gets trickier, <laughs> but sometimes you do get those those chances still. They say that. I think I think they say it takes seven years to get your sleep back on schedule. I can say that's just about right. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, well I'm looking forward to that someday. Um. <laughs> oh yeah, it's just a different experience. It's all good. The dreams are always there though. And getting back to this thing get, we're talking about here, right, is you know dreams are pretty essential to <clears throat> I would say the overall just like processing of the day. Um, you know, if you're just speaking in a physiological sense, you know, there's a lot there that symbolically pops up, but also, which I think is really important that this movie brings up is that, uh, things that have happened before, uh, make their appearance, i.e., oh, there's my nice wife with the butcher knife. (laughs) I just want to talk. (laughs) Oh boy. You know? Can you imagine Dom, you know, just the, the thoughts that go through his head? He's always so calm, right? He's like, well, if she stabs me, it's okay. I'll just wake up, you know, because he's he's pretty sure it's just a a normal sedative that he used that time. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it, this this movie really engages that, you know. Oh, totally. I. It definitely feels real sometimes when you're in the dream and it also the the dreams have shades of reality in them i mean we still have very little understanding to my knowledge <laughs> not a scientist who studies these such things but it seems we still have very little understanding of how dreams actually work and how our subconscious kind of constructs these things but still super interesting to think about and while maybe the science isn't perfect here i do love i think the thing that i like about this movie above every other nolan movie and it, that's pretty high praise because i think all of nolan's movies do this well is that there is not a dry moment in any part of this movie. There's not a second where 
you're like, I wish we were in the next scene already. The entire thing is meaningful. Every single scene, it's like just chocked full of good stuff, great acting. I mean, I just think about like maybe the the kind of flattest terrain in the movie, so to speak, is when Cobb is teaching Ariadne um, how to in, in like the first time she goes into the shared dream state and she's building her dreams and she's doing the architecture thing and even there it's so interesting because you're just looking at it and you're like oh my gosh like how how is she gonna you know how is she learning how to construct this maze and she's also figuring out you know figuring out what cops up to and stuff the whole thing it's just non-stop yeah I, well, let's talk about that science of dream sharing for a second because i'm i'm really interested in this and um you know what it seems like the the apparatus and again i don't know if he stole that from cobalt engineering or what and that's why they're after him maybe <laughs> who knows but or you can just go down to walmart and buy a dream sharing device now who knows um i just think it's fascinating um but it's some kind of a chemical pump right and it seems to have a reservoir in it you know and then it just pumps out the the sedative um but the sedative not only does that because they talked about well that's just the sedative right so there's obviously another chemical component there that i believe you know based on the the guy who's making the uh, who the chemist right he was talking about oh well you know there's also this other one that'll give you a lot of sharpness so i think he's got two things to play with in terms of the chemistry and then uh the thing that is least talked about is the fact that okay so if you're talking about, you know, and, and I'll, I'll just say that the brain is an analog computer. It's the most ad advanced analog computer ever made, right? Um, you know, you've got five, six brains, you know, networked somehow. And it just blows my mind because you think about all the, the data, right? The symbolism, the, the reaction times, um, we're just going to theorize, though, for this purpose of this winter tour, because all they have is IVs. They don't have any nervous system links. This has to be literally a wireless thing. And so we're going to theorize here just so that we deal with it. And we've wondered about it, um, that the, the chemistry somehow enhances the the uh, yeah, the electromagnetic uh, output from brains. Um, and that there's a special one for the dreamer. So the dreamer gets a special concoction that kind of puts them in control. So it's kind of like if you've ever looked into what they, you know, they, they call like a strobe, um, which is, you know, like, it's like a signal basically. Um, but anyway, I know I'm getting super nerdy here, so I'm going to stop, but I just think it's really fascinating because that's like the whole other piece to this is how do these brains exchange information uh, to have a shared dream. So um, you can think about that, though. And, uh, you know, that's just part I, of the wonder tour, Derek. That's yeah, that's I part mean, of it. we got to think about these yeah. things. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> I yeah. am curious, so, what do you think about does does the network of brains allow for a much more complex and deep dream? Well, that's what I was trying to think through here as I was talking, which was that, and, and this is what happens when you reach the end of your branch that you're on, you're about ready to break off. But <laughs> um, yeah, we've climbed out pretty far on this branch. <laughs> you oh, have at yeah. least. <laughs> big time, big time. Um, you know, I was just thinking that you know, you've got some kind of like really rudimentary interface that, you know, it's like 
is everybody really having the same dream? And I think that's not the way that this is going to work. I think it's that they are all having a dream from their different perspectives. And, and that's really weird to think about, but I think it's in line with the lore of the movie, which is that the projections are uh, from, you know, that dude's self-conscious or anybody's subconscious here. Um, What we saw in the movie, that's just an amalgamation of all the different perspectives that, you know, he wanted to show through the movie. But I think in reality, if this were real, that's I'm just I'm playing this game. If this were real, I think each person would have their own distinct, unique version of the dream. What do you think about that? Well, I think that, of course, there has to be some perspective associated with it. The interesting thing that about it is that when you're in your own dream, you presumably have the agency. So you are the one dictating how everything happens, essentially. Your subconscious is creating these projections, um, at least even in theory, not just in the movie, that seems to be the case, right? Because what else is creating these projections? (laughs) But as you introduce these other actors, there's multiple agents now inside of your dream, which means that the, the, if you just think about like the outcomes as like the ends of this branch of the, of, of a tree, uh, you know, it's kind of like this winding logic that can go one way or another a million different times. It becomes so much more complex. The more human agents that you have inside of that dream as to how it can all play out. So it does seem like the complexity, I'm not sure if the depth necessarily is increased, but definitely the breadth of what's happening inside of the dream is increasing significantly. Yeah, I, I had thought of a quick, you know, explanation, at least, at least what I'm saying here, which is, um, you know, if you are obsessed with circuses, for example, uh, you if one of the one of the dreamers outside the agent, you know, person who's in control, you know, if they want to interpret what, you know, the guy who's in control, how he's dreaming, if they want to interpret that as I'm at the circus or I'm at the world's fair, I think that that is totally in line with dreams and the way that things get contorted. Um, because we do this all the time, you know, when we have a dream or something and we, uh, we reinterpret like everything through a lens that makes sense to our subconscious. Uh, and it's, it's a messy conversation, but I, I think you get what I'm saying, right? Yeah, I do. <laughs> That's, Oh, I like going that deep, though, because it helps me to think about how do I it's not just how do I interpret dreams? It's how do I interpret everything? It's how do I interpret my reality? Right. Because interpreting your reality isn't that much different than interpreting like the dreams at that level. I don't think (laughs) the difference is that like we are as humans, we are like too sure that we know what reality actually looks like. Versus, and I think we started talking about this, but maybe didn't go that deep into it in the Fight Club episode. But we are, like, as humans, I mean, science would say, like, behavioral analysis would say, we are too sure that we think we know what's happening when in reality we don't. It's just how we're seeing it. Yeah, yeah, I know. I like what you're saying there. And you think about stuff in career, think about stuff in business. And, you know, we'll we'll talk more about it later, but it's like, like you say, we we really we really do think it goes a certain way, 
And if you're not really perceptive enough, if you're not really aware enough, if you're not in tune enough, um, you could mislead yourself into thinking that things, you know, went a certain direction in that meeting. They went a certain direction in that conversation. But did they really? Or are you just clouding your own judgment, <laughs> you know, thinking that you thinking that you got it? Maybe you didn't or maybe you thought you didn't get it and you did, you know. Um, yeah, <laughs> this is going to come back up at the end. I, I want to talk yeah. about this with the ending because it all wraps back up around where I, I don't think, Derek, this time we're going to go at all sequentially through the story, because I'm fairly confident that if you're listening to this, you've seen Inception multiple times. So you probably don't need any. And if you haven't, then just go back and watch it again. I mean, I know that not everybody has time, so I can't, I'm not don't want to speak from a place of not of knowing your situation, but it's worth it. It's always, you know. I think over time I've like been lower and higher on it. I think like where it ends up now is like somewhere in my top 10 movies of all time, probably the lower end of the top 10. Um, but I think it's like I, somebody, somebody else said this before. Pretty sure it was maybe Nick Scarpino. I want to give him credit of kind of funny when he was talking about Inception said it's the most ambitious like piece of media ever created potentially. <laughs> and it pretty much pulls it off. Yeah, I mean, because you've got the infinite, uh, infiniteness of it all, right? Although he encapsulate the encapsulates the infiniteness of it very well, um, and I thought that that was how he uh, he was able to achieve the interlocking, you know, between all the different levels of the dreams, um, you know, because he kept the scope tight, you know, on those on those things. And I don't want to get too much into the movie mechanics, but um, I am interested in what can be learned from that. So well, we'll get to that. What do you want to go into next? All right. I'm good to hop into the mentor because this is actually, as I've watched this movie again this week, this has been one of the things that stuck out to me the most that didn't stick out to me in previous run throughs of this movie. And I've probably, I would say I've seen this movie a dozen times probably. And this time it stuck out more than ever, probably because I was, you know, more purposefully going on a wonder tour of it. But I just love the character of Sato. I, I don't, they call him Sato and Saito in the movie. So I don't really know what his actual name is. I know that Cobb calls him Saito and I'm pretty sure he calls himself Sato. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard it pronounced both ways. Uh, it depends on your, <laughs> it, it depends on your accent. Uh, actually your Japanese accent, but, uh, Saito would be the, uh, you know, I, I I made my toe last too long there, but Saito, yeah, is the uh, at least the Tokyo accent. <laughs> so at least I can contribute in that that area there. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. This is I like going on the water tour for this reason. You just pick up these little small nuggets of knowledge. Maybe they're not that useful to you, but they're fun to learn. So <laughs> Saito. Yeah. Okay. I'm good with that. Um. So, but. I just want to hit on some of the major things here. So, like, first off, I think we have to say the obvious. If we're studying leadership in Inception, just because Cobb is the protagonist doesn't mean very much about his, doesn't mean we want to study how he leads because he is primarily toxic in this movie. He is leading people blindly. He is allowing a lot of bias into his leadership. He is, now, he, he's good at making operational decisions. He's good at pivoting when things go wrong. Absolutely. There are good aspects of him as well, especially just like skills that he has. 
But I think if you're just looking at who's a really good leader in this movie, I'm pretty sure it's got to be Saito. Oh, yeah, I really like him. Um, he is uh, kind of cool, calm, and collected. And um, he he is very trusting of Cobb. And um, I don't know. Is that like a – don't you feel like that's like a really pure trait in him, this implicit trust? Yeah, he has he's he's willing to trust. He actually the more I like think about him, the more I think about how he fits the role of a sponsor, but more than a sponsor. So like on a project or something like that, you might have a sponsor who might be like an executive um, or whatever. You know, hey, you might have you might be a kid who's doing something and your parents going to be the sponsor. Right. But the sponsor is just the person who's going to advise, look out for the the team remove barriers from the team and in general if you have a good sponsor they're not a manager so they're not going to be in there telling you what to do essentially they're basically just going to be drawing some lines on the paper for you and saying like hey this is kind of what the roadmap looks like of what we're trying to do um, let me help you and let me help you to now fill this in and figure out how we're going to achieve it and when you run into trouble just let me know and I'll do everything I can to get you out of trouble yeah, Saito, he he really does play that role very well. And you're right. Um, that is that's somebody you really want on your side. And I, I do like the idea of, you know, um, having the sponsor, having a sponsor bought into your team and actually being one of the members. And, I, I, you know, I, he's not a tourist, right? That's <laughs> he's, no tourist yeah, on this trip. Yeah, people people are usually held back from that, I think, sometimes. I think that they in some ways they can't envision themselves. Uh, oh, well that, well that's, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's always this. And I want to say that I don't think it's this most of the time, which is I can't do that. That's beneath me. I don't think that's what it is. I think there is a level of awkwardness of where would I fit on that team? Because I'm at, you know, a, a top leadership level. Um, but if you can be that person, honestly, I think that is that's a real uh, barrier breaker right there because um, you number one, you gain perspectives that you'd never have. Listening to your peers all the time, you can take back valuable experience um, because you're getting refreshed, and also it's just a huge energy rush being around people who are doing the work. Um, so I, I think that's and this is. I don't want to say this is like your typical, I mean, I know this is an operation kind of sorts, but you know, I look at this, if we talk about in terms of business, I think this is more of like, it maps better onto a tactical maneuver. Don't you think? Yeah, it definitely maps better onto a tactical than an operational maneuver. This is more so a, we're making a plan and we're going to, we're going to execute on that plan versus we're just, you know, we're doing the work necessarily. It does seem like there's more tactics involved here. And I, I, by no means are we saying that every every leader should be playing this like hands-on sponsor role all the time. But in my experience, the more visionary leaders do tend to play a more hands-on sponsor role. Um, that box kind of gets filled on projects with different types of people. And sometimes they are more just a manager type. They're just like, all right, just come to me when you need money or whatever <laughs> and, and present to me and I'll give you money. 
um, you know, if your presentation is good, obviously. But when we look at Saito, he says things like he needs he wants to secure his his investment. And so he wants to be there personally. He's putting skin in the game with the team, which I love. I think that there's a lot to learn here for all of us in how do you how do we play a mentor role? Because you got to put some skin in the game as a mentor. Yeah, you got to put something on the line. Um, what does that do to the mentee, Drew? What's that make them? Uh, let's do an empathy map on the mentee when you do that. Yeah, so when you do that with the mentee, it immediately the mentee, because the mentee inherently is hasn't been in the position of the mentor. You know, maybe they're mentoring somebody else, but they're not from the same vantage point as the mentor generally, because you want somebody who's in a, in a way above you to be mentoring you, at least in some levels of life, they're above you. So it helps to be able to, for them to be able to see through your eyes a little bit better and vice versa, right? It allows you, it, 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 empathy is the perfect name for it. Like you were saying, Derek, it's like you're able to empathize with each other better when you kind of like sit down on the same level together. And it also, I think, you know, having been on the receiving end of having a having a sponsor or mentor like this before, it helps you to continue to be able to press forward. You believe in in yourself more. It gives you confidence in what you're doing that somebody of, you know, somebody whose job it is to kind of provision resources or, you know, and whose time is very valuable is choosing to spend that time with you. It really like it helps you mentally to be able to overcome some of those like little blockers. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I'm really processing, kind of processing what you're saying there, but I, I really do appreciate you kind of walking through uh, for that person, you know, that that's kind of stopping everything. And I think the, uh, the the thing that I was thinking about as you were talking was that, you know, they stop the busyness of everything that they're doing. Um, you know, I'm sure Saito had many things to do in the office. Uh, when you do a lot of international travel, you are really in the business of maintaining relationships, especially in Asia. Um, this is a culture just in general of face-to-face -face relationships. So um, you have to, you know, you got to be there in person. So what that does is it makes your time even more strained. Um, and so if you think about the, the time that this guy is spending to jet out to Mumbai, uh, you know, and all these different things, um, just to do some weird dream stuff. <laughs> you know, think, well, what do I put in my planner today? Let me look. Okay. Let's open up the Franklin here. Okay. I've got weird dream stuff for three days. Okay. <laughs> you know, well, what do you write in your planner when you're doing this? <laughs> well, he look just shows up. One second. <laughs> I, yeah, I have no idea what his what other would you obligations write? are. What would you write in your planner? Would you write weird dream stuff? I would, but I want to see what you're, what would you well, write? Well, this is his big, remember, he he really sells it well. And of course, Nolan always tries to like make these things fit together. But the whole thing is like his business is in trouble. It's a huge business. So there's a lot of money in it, but it's in trouble if he doesn't, um, if he doesn't get Fisher to break up his, the, the kind of the monopoly that he's going to have in the, the world energy market. So for him, this is like his play. This is his last stand. So I think that's why he's all in on this. That's why he's he's showing up wherever he has to be. I mean, he's just showing he shows up like you were saying in Mumbai to to save Cobb from the cobalt engineering. 
he he buys the plane. Like, I love that part where he's just like, no, I, he's like, I bought the airline because they needed to figure out how to get Fisher in a conducive state to be able to get him into a dream sharing. So he just that's like the idea of, you know, it's simple. It's like the first bullet point on a list of like what a sponsor does is they remove barriers. But he just shows you like this is what removing barriers is like removing barriers. Ideally, is just moving the things that the team themselves have no power to move. They cannot get, you know, Cobb and, and the team have incredible abilities, but they can't get the airlines like the flight switch so that Fisher is on a certain flight or whatever. They need the sponsor to step in and just be like, look. Here, I'm just going to wave a wand and just do it for you. Now, you focus on the things that that I can't do, the technical stuff. Yeah, the stuff where it takes a lot of expertise and specifics. Um, yeah, so um, I don't know. Where else do you want to go with Saito here? I mean, he's, you know, there's. I'm sure there's – you sound like you had some more stuff. So let's – I do let's, have a little bit more stuff here. Yeah, I, let's crank through it. Let's crank through it. There's at okay. least one more. How can we talk about Saito? How can we talk about Saito without talking about the opening of the movie where Saito and Leo are. Where Saito and Leo um, or Cobb are talking. In after he wakes up on the shore of his subconscious. And they have this, you know, this exchange that we'll talk about at some point here. But I just feel like I've been Cobb in that situation and I've been Saito in that situation before, like on both sides of that conversation. Right. So all of us are Saito and all of us are Cobb is what I'm proposing. I'm not saying that maybe everybody doesn't fit with that, but it seems to me that it definitely works for me. I'm Saito because sometimes I need someone to come shake me awake. Right. I've fallen asleep to my purpose and I need someone to shake me awake. And in this scenario, right, Saito is there and he's just living out his life. He's recreated his life in limbo, essentially. And he's living it out with, you know, into into old age, back in the same, you know, we see him in that same room in his palace, essentially. And he's really fallen asleep to any sort of purpose. He needs somebody to come slap him awake. Um, And Cobb, on the other hand, right, he needs somebody who knows who he actually is. He needs somebody who knows him because he... He, remember here, he's gone into limbo two times in a row. He's gone into limbo two times in a row, essentially, here. So he went down to the bottom layer, um, at, through the third layer, to see Fisher, to save Fisher. But then he dies um, when he's under the water. At least this is how I interpret it. He dies when he's under the water and he goes uh, and he drowns and he goes back to limbo again. And when he goes back the second time, he doesn't really remember anything, right? Um, at this point, like he's he's lost sight of his purpose. And so he needs somebody who looks at him and, and is like, no, I know who you are. You know, you're Cobb. You, he, and he, he recognizes him maybe by the face, maybe by the top. I guess by the top is definitely how he recognizes him. But we need that. We need somebody who shakes us awake. And we also sometimes need somebody who's just like, no, that's not who you are. You're not this aimless wanderer. You have a purpose. I remember that. Like, don't get lost. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and you can get lost in uh, the routine and the mundaneness of um, just doing the same things every day, right? Seeing the seeing the same sights, seeing the same landmarks, whatever it may be. Uh, <clears throat> I always think, you know, and I said this back in the uh, um, 
greatest showman episode, but it's, it's really about, or no, no, it was uh, up, I think where, you know, your day is kind of like the, this, uh, and you take symbol, however you want a symbol could be something you hear a symbol could be something you see. Um, but you kind of get stuck into that. Right. And you start thinking through the same patterns. So if, yeah, if I think about how I can get stuck and I need to be, uh, or I forget asleep and I need to be woken up. Um, I think that fits beautifully. Yeah. And we can look at it from both sides, obviously, right? Like we, we all need to be woken up and we all need to be, need somebody to see us for who we really are and not who we're pretending to be and not who we, not who we you know, the, the kind of like dulled out state that we sometimes end up in after we get beaten down by the world. But we also all need to be the opposite side of that, right? We need to be there to talk to somebody who has lost sight of who they are. And we need to be the person who's telling them, you know, no, I remember this is who you are. Do you like you don't become an old man filled with regret? Yeah, you know, I want to say, too, right here is that honestly, we would be kidding ourselves if we didn't engage this. Um, but you, there are multiple levels of waking up too. just like there's ways to have a kick to get out of a lower level of a dream, whether it's you're, you're down in limbo or you are in some self-induced dream that you can't seem to wake up from. And we could go on and on about that one for sure. Um, but I'm just going to say for right now is that um, there are multiple levels of waking up. There's been, there have been times where I thought, wow, that really woke me up. But then I look back and I'm thinking, wait a minute, I still wasn't awake completely. Um, and I think that's interesting. What do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, there are multiple levels of the dream. I like it. Because <laughs> you're right. Sometimes you think that you woke up to your purpose. And in actuality, you just woke up from like level three to level two, right? Like you're just like got yeah. one, you got one level out of the dream. Uh, or you got one one dream shallower, which is good. Very good. But you're definitely not back at the root level yet. <laughs> yeah. And I think what's interesting here is, is that when you go up one level, then I, I think if, if you, so I don't know, go with me here. It's kind of interesting, but you know, the further down you go, I think the more focused and smaller, you know, your perspective gets. So the, the more asleep you are, I think the more, you know, like look at that conversation. I mean, I mean, the whole experience down at the lower level was just like the one conversation and the, at the one table, essentially. I know he woke up on a beach or whatever, but, um, you know, when you're really asleep, I think your world can be really small. You know, I'm not saying this is a hard and fast rule 100 percent, but um, when you wake up one level, I think that you can then uh, see what that lower level was and understand what was going on with yourself. And you can see how you got asleep at that level. And I think that's the only way that you really truly wake up in reality. You know, you say, wow, I was really in a rut there. Um, I understand the rut now. Now, I don't understand where else I'm stuck, but at least I'm one <laughs> level up. Right? Yeah. That's about how it feels, I would say. Thank you. Encapsulated that well. You got out of one rut. You're probably still in another rut. It's a different level. <laughs> Yeah. That's I'm okay. But that, that I mean, it's good time. to recognize that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, we have wait to. Wait a minute. 
Yeah, that's self-development, right? I mean, really, you know, and a lot of what we're talking about here, right, is as leaders, right, we get from, you know, maybe maybe the one rut. I'll give you a great example of, well, I can't speak in front of people. Okay, so you get past that, right? You're, so you're really not nervous about speaking in front of people anymore. But now, what do you want to do? You're you're out of that rut, and then you go up one level, and then you're like, now wait a minute, how can I get them to believe this concept, believe in this concept because it's real, it's true? But how do I do it? Right? That's a whole different kind of rut, right? That's a higher level of everything. And I think that's how this works here. If we're, if we're, you know, extrapolating out, uh, you know, and doing the wake up call, you know, so to say. All right. I think we've, we've got to move on, unfortunately here. All right. So let's introduce our moment. We had a lot of deliberation on what we were going to do as the moment today. Like, like we said at the beginning, almost anything could have been chosen for this one, but what we ended on is on the third level down when they're in like the military compound with the ho- with the hospital room in the center of it that they're trying to in Fisher's dream basically we should say when Cobb finally has to overcome Mal and he, he he's been failing this test over and over again especially in front of Ariadne he keeps failing this test Mal keeps showing up and and in front of Arthur as well right but Every time she shows up, she messes stuff up and and Cobb fails to stop her before she does it because he can't bring himself to shoot her or whatever, even though he knows that she's just a projection. It's and we can you can empathize with him here because I can imagine that's incredibly painful situation to to put him in. The problem is that like that pain is past, you know, it's, it's present pain, but that that event is in the past. And these people that he's here with are in the present. And so he needs to obviously overcome that in order to protect the people in the present, because there's no use in holding on to the past at the at the cost of the present, basically. <laughs> so our moment is when Maul shows up and she breaks through the window or like slides down the rope, whatever, and she shoots Fisher. And then finally, Ariadne's there and she's just like, Cobb. Like, get a hold of yourself because he's holding the sniper rifle and looking at her. And then finally he pulls the trigger. And at this moment, it seems like an inflection point for Cobb where he finally makes the right decision. And I want to note something here. So when he gets her, I don't think he really gets her that good with the shot. But I think what's interesting here is because that projection's coming from him, he registers the fact that he knocked her out, right? That he that he killed her in that uh, in that scene. Uh, but if you go back and look at the movie, it's it's kind of funny because he kind of gets her in the shoulder. Um, but it, it doesn't matter because he believes that he got her. You see what I'm saying? And he's the one who's doing the uh, you know the projection of of Mal into that uh, you know into the dream. Um, so I just thought that was kind of interesting because I as I was watching that I was like. He didn't even really get her that good. <laughs> um, but, you know, he's obviously like this this fake Mal, you know, is is in there. He put her in there. And I think there's a, an element here to learn from the, uh, you know, just the, uh, the self-defeating, right? You've got, you know, I mean, do you have a second to talk about how there are self-defeating thoughts that 
that kind of, I mean, this is a great lesson in that, isn't it? Or am I missing it? No, this is a, I'm kind of with you. I think this, there are these self-defeating thoughts that when you, when you really understand them, which is hard to do in the moment, and it's definitely hard to do when they're, when they're kind of invading your thought space. But when you're able to think about them outside of that, you recognize that these thoughts are kind of like, no matter what happens with them, it's bad. <laughs> like it doesn't because you're so you're so stuck in trying to figure out like what your position is. You're like, well, am I going to stay with Maul or am I going to not stay with Maul or whatever? And it's like in the end, Cobb has to realize there is no staying with Maul, basically. It, he's stuck in this like, well, if I could just stay with her for one more minute, I could just prolong this this, you know, this battle. And in the end, it's kind of this false like it's this false choice that he has that he's going to end up staying with Maul because he can't actually end up staying with Maul. She's not real. It doesn't. And even if even if he can't find his way back to reality in this situation, he has to come to terms with the fact that he is not the center of the universe. He is not the center of, you know, he's maybe the protagonist of the story, but he's 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 not the only important character. His perspective isn't all that matters. His perspective isn't reality. Yeah, I mean, you know, Amal is, uh, you know, I love how he said it near the end there when they're in limbo. He's like, you know, you're just a shade. I was like, Dang, that was the best phrase. Um, you know, he's like, you're just a shade of my wife. And uh, I think that's how projections work. Um, they take, uh, so an emotion like guilt, right? can be transformed and projected as, you know, an entire person, a persona that, you know, a slice of a person that maybe you let down, you know, um, whatever that is, I don't care. It's, it's not relevant so much as that these, <laughs> these, uh, these symbols, you know, that we let sit there, you know, it's kind of like, um, you know, that, that can be that, that thing that holds you back because you keep thinking about it or whatever. So anyway, uh, that's about the extent of the depth that we go with this stuff. But I, I think it was, I thought it was interesting to at least talk about, you know, um, I think the main thing is to be, you know, mindful of the thoughts that, you know, you have when you're put under some pressure, uh, you put in a moment where you've got to act and what is it exactly that, um, is holding you back. And I think that's for you to figure out, you know, but it's a, it's something, it's something to consider because if you don't, or if you don't have uh, an Ariadne uh, there to kind of point it out, and she did so pointedly several times earlier in the movie, um, she knew this was going to happen and she led up to it. And she's, she's really been trying to guide him the entire time. He just won't let her, he, she can't make it happen. Right. And that's where this moment, you know, obviously finally she nudged him enough, but in the end, he had to choose, right? Yeah, he has to make the choice. He's the only one who can. He's kind of fighting against himself in this battle, and he, he has to come to the realization that, and this is really hard, and I think this is going to take us into the moral here. It's kind of a crossover between the moment and the moral, but the moral that we want to end this part one on is the idea that you can ignore truths at your own peril. 
So there's basically yeah. a, you can ignore truths, but there's a cost and that cost compounds over time when you ignore truths. There's this, it's way more complicated than just like, well, just replace the lie with the truth. Right, Derek? Right. I mean, because there's a, a process of actually absorbing the truth. And that's the process that we see Cobb go through. Um, and it is an ugly process. And he dragged everybody through that. And, you you know, think about in real life. You don't want to do that. Um, you don't want to drag everybody through your process of absorbing the truth. The bigger the truth uh the bigger the process is that <laughs> is that right well maybe but i mean it kind of becomes bigger over time when you don't address it that's the real issue here and so the truth just to be straightforward the truth that we're talking about here is and kind of the focal point of the movie is that Cobb incepted the idea to into Maul that her reality is not real right and this is what he's coming to grips with the entire movie is he has to accept that truth as what actually happened. Now, again, we'll, we'll get into the ending later on and, did, you know, are we actually ending in, in the real world or not? But regardless, that's kind of what we we're trying to get at is it doesn't really matter if he's in reality or not. He has to he has this internal battle waging in his head that has to come to a resolution and the the resolution there's really no space for a resolution where Maul wins in this situation. Yeah, no, it's it's totally true. And and well, and I think it's interesting, and we'll talk about this in the second half. But you know, um, Maul is him, and I, <laughs> I you know, let's wrap our minds around that. How can an idea, you know, take on its a mind of its own? Um, it does. It definitely does, and. You, you become fragmented, but, um, well, um, let's, let's wrap it right there. Um, you know, if you, if you had anything that you wanted to kind of, uh, throw out there on this, this, uh, this first half of inception, uh, hit us up on the wonder tour on Twitter and Drew, I already know what we're going to do next week. So <laughs> we yeah, will, next uh, week is part two of inception. Tune in to hear us analyze what we think of the ending and break down more of the tricky morals that come out of this movie. That's good. I like, you know, that you added that little bit cause I was just going to drop it and yeah, that sounded better. Um, okay. So I'll close this out. Uh, all those who wonder are not lost. We'll see you next time.